If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Health Canada has approved Moderna's Omicron variant COVID-19 vaccine. Remember COVID-19? Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. You may remember seeing this uh, video, and it was uh, quite stunning, especially for those of us that have grown up around uh, ships and and, uh, Great Lakes and and shipping canals and such. I mean, you know, we're no stranger to this sort of thing uh, in Hamilton and uh, anywhere along any of the Great Lakes system. And uh, however, uh, when something unusual happens, it's usually pretty unusual. And that's certainly uh, the case here. And I'm I'm sure you've seen this video. And if you... uh, and if you haven't, you can easily search it online. Uh, but the Transport Safety Board of Canada says a 2020 collision between two cargo vessels in the Welland Canal was caused by hydrodynamic forces acting on one of the vessels in the waterway. Uh, investigators say the coming together of the Florence Spirit and the Alanis near the 16-mile mark of the canal in Ontario caused sustained extensive structural damage to the hull of both boats. Uh, two ships traveling in opposite directions uh, collided head-on around Four o'clock Saturday, July 11th, four in the afternoon, 2020, Ontario's Welland Canal, a key shipping route that connects Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. The Florence Spirit was shipping coal destined for Quebec, while the Alanis was bound for Duluth, Minnesota, with wind turbine components on board. No one was hurt. No pollution in the waterway was observed following the incident, according to the uh, TSB. Uh, the federal agency says instant messaging between those in control of the ships diverted the attention of Florence spirits master away from coordinating the encounter encounter with his own bridge team and excluded other bridge team members from having critical information uh is this just distracted shipping uh let's bring in yevgen lashenkin investigator with the transport uh, transportation safety board of canada and is with us now yevgen thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yeah thank you very much nice to speak with you so, Yevgen, is this just a case of a distracted captain? No, but it's it's contributed to uh, like a, for destruction of the captain. But mm-hmm. I can precise that the last message between the pilot of the Alanis and uh, the master of the Florence Spirit was twenty between twenty twenty five minutes before collision. And what why they use the messages just uh, to arrange their meeting in the Wellington. So how did this happen then? You see that, uh, like I already uh, said before, that Florence Spirit uh, proceeded at this section with the maximum permissible speed, uh, close to nine, uh, 10 knots, uh, 9.9 knots precisely, and experienced uh, hydrodynamic forces, which is the bank effect, uh, consisting from the two forces, bank suction force and bank cushion force. And once it's developed very far, and the vessel uh, lost control and produced like an uncontrollable, uncontrollable uh, shear, shearing or yawing towards the center of the canal and collided with Alanis. So why did that happen this time, Yevgen, when it doesn't happen with other ships that are going in either direction? Maybe 
the the monster just uh, it was I mean I mean the Florence spirit maybe underestimate the effect and I can tell you with the mm. with the, the speed of 9.9 knots it developed very very fast. So uh, for anybody that's driven a boat of any kind, um, obviously you have to be propelling at a certain speed, otherwise otherwise the boat is incontrollable. Is that basically what happened here? You see that uh, like a like a optimal speed was uh, a six knots. Right. But to respect ETA to the uh, log seven, the Florence spirit. Uh, proceeded with the maximum permissible speed to be to respect the ETA to the next block. It was the reason why the vessel uh, sailed with the maximum speed. So, uh, so was speed an issue in this then? Uh, not the speed and proximity of the uh, edge of the canal, of the side of the canal. Right. Because the closer you go to the side of the canal. This, these forces, bank suction and bank cushion, will be uh, more and more pronounced. So, uh, at the end of the day, which one of these ships is guilty of uh, going into the path of the other? No, but uh, you see, uh, like uh, it's not our goal of transportation safety right. board to blame, to blame somebody. Right. The, uh, we, we, we try to. Uh, improve uh, the safety in uh, marine transportation by identifying the contributing uh, causes and con- contributing factors in this occurrence. That's why we don't blame. We just try to find these causes and uh, which can help us to prevent the similar occurrences in the future. Okay, Yevgen, let me ask this question this way then. Um, what could these two ships have done to avoid this? To avoid this? You see, uh, the best way, like uh, two vessels, they stay at the center of the canal and uh, a certain distance, let's say, four, six cables, they alter their course to starboard. And then one spot each other, they come back to the center. Maybe right. uh, Lawrence Spirit move a little bit too far from the center of the canal. Ah, uh, and then basically became uncontrollable. Yes. Uh, what about, uh, what kind of, and I know you're not an expert uh, shipbuilder or anything, Yevgen, but what kind of damage done to these boats, to these ships? I've been deployed. We were three persons, three investigators de- deployed on the, these two vessels. I've been there on Florence Spirit and Alanis. It was considerable damage, uh, mostly like a forecastle of the boss vessel. Boss vessel, and it, it it required like essential repairs. But it is they are repairable. Yes, sure, and uh, it's already both these vessels already. Uh, like I don't tell you exactly how long time, but they came came back to their service. Wow, that's incredible! Have you ever seen anything like that before, Yevgen? <laughs> I can tell if my my previous experience because I sailed for twenty two years. My ship collided in nineteen ninety eight in Myanmar with the bulk area Alicia, and my vessel sunk there. Oh, man. So there's lots of stories to tell. Uh, uh, Yevgen, thank you so 
Thank you so much for your time. Yevgen Lashankin with us, investigator with the Transport Safety Board of Canada, talking about those two ships that collided in the afternoon, not the night, uh, right there in Welland Canal. And you can look it up. It's incredible to see. Canada's largest rib fest returns to Burlington Spencer Smith Park this Labor Day weekend. Uh, the event will feature 16 rib teams, a midway marketplace, stages, uh, two stages for music. This is all part of Burlington Rotary Lakeshore, uh, a massive fundraising event. They've been doing, I think this is like the 25th year. And I remember being in Spencer Smith Park when it looked a lot different than it does now, 25 years ago, and they pitched the very first one. I remember this very vividly. Uh, since then, they've raised about four and a half million bucks for charity, uh, and it is back on after a, a couple of year hiatus and abbreviated versions and drive throughs and stuff. Uh, Brent Past is with us, past president of Rotary, uh, Rotary Burlington Lakeshore and co-chair of Canada's largest rib fest. How you doing, Brent? Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty exciting year this year. I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's going to be an exciting year. We're super excited to be back in the Spencer Smith Park. And as you can imagine, uh, less than 24 hours until the gates open, there's a lot going on in the park. And we've been at it all week long. So everybody's everybody's stoked for the weekend. And, and we're just looking forward to welcoming people back. Brent, honestly, I remember uh, being at the news conference uh, in Spencer Smith Park way, way back when, when they announced the very first one. And I believe asking Jason Thorpe at the time, although I may be incorrect in my name. John, John Thorpe. John Thorpe, I'm sorry. Uh, asking him, uh, like, where did this come from? Where did you get this idea? And and at this time, there, were, there weren't any really of these around in Canada. This was a groundbreaking event when it was launched 25 years ago, wasn't it? Well, it really was. And like John Thorpe and, and, and another member of the club, Dr. Bob Peeling, um, John John's very active in the cycling community. So he mm-hmm. was down in Ohio and he saw this rib fest. And, you know, so him and Bob being good buddies and they said, you know, maybe this is something we can do up here. It, you know, we might embrace it. And so sure enough, in 1996, they started the first one with a few teams and uh, a couple of them are still here with us today after 25 years. And it's gone from a small little tailgate party down at Spencer Smith Park to you know, probably the best and biggest end of summer barbecue in the area. Yeah, it is something. Uh, so how did you get through the, the global pandemic? I know this was a challenge for everybody and events and hospitality alike. How did you get through this? Well, you know, like like everything else, this is, you know, this uh, Canada's largest rib fest is a fundraising initiative of Rotary Burlington Lakeshore. So being Rotarians, you always have to, you know, every, everything we raise goes to charity. And just because there was a pandemic, the, the need was even greater. So we had to mm. pivot. So we pivot to drive throughs And uh, Burlington, we, we did uh, four of those at the Burlington Center the past couple of years, yeah. and they were well received. And, and it helped us to continue to do what we do, um, you know, but again, on a much smaller scale than what, what, what we're used to, correct? So how big of a challenge to get this thing fired up again after two years uh, semi-hiatus and, and get it up and running again in Spencer Smith Park? I think it's like anything else. You know, you take a bicycle out of the shed that you haven't you haven't driven yeah. and rode on in the past couple of years, and some of the chains are a little bit rusty. And, you know, so we've been oiling the chains and getting things going. But uh, it, it's funny. Even though we had the pandemic, we never really stopped planning or looking ahead to this, right? And so we just, but we started firing on all cylinders at the beginning of the year. And fortunately, we still have a lot of people in the club who who were around and helped organize from day one, right? So you have that to, to fall back on. Our rib teams were very excited about being back. Our crafters, our other vendors, food trucks. So everybody's been eager to, to get back. So that made it a, a lot easier, that's for sure. 
And what do you learn after being off for two years? Uh, any changes to this year's edition as a result of all this? Well, it, it's it's one of those things, right? There's changes. There's subtle changes, obviously, with the pandemic and following health protocols. Um you know, a little more hand sanitizing. You'll see masks, yeah. uh, you know, mask friendly. We're trying the best we can to, to follow, you know, public health guidelines. So I would say that's probably the biggest challenge is to make sure, um, because as much as it's a fantastic, fun festival and barbecue over the weekend, you know, number one priority is, is the, you know, the safety of those people who, who attend and those people who are working and volunteering at it. So those are some of the, those have been some of the challenges that we had working around. But I think, yeah, I think we've got uh, things in hand. Uh, you talked about some of, you know, having some of the original teams that have been here since the beginning of all of this. I remember the heart of this was in the United States. Uh, there's, it's amazing how many Canadian teams have jumped on board doing this now. Well, that's absolutely right. Like we have Canadian teams, we have some local teams, we have teams from you know, all across Canada. Now these teams, you know, and, and then, you know, by the time they get to us at Labor Day, we've been lucky, right? Because yeah. they've been, they've been doing some other rib fest, you know, events that would normally happen earlier in the year. They've all been kind of getting back into the action and the swing of things this year. Right. So, you know, those, those ones who've been around a long time and we kind of lean, we, we lean into them a little bit too, right. Just to kind of help us, uh, what we can expect in terms of crowd sizes and, and, uh, and just to kind of help us get through it. I have a funny feeling you're going to have a full house, uh, Brent. <laughs> if you go by you any both. other, if you have any any other indication from any other events or concerts that are going on, it seems people are waiting for this sort of thing now. Uh, so to somebody who has never been, somebody who's never seen it, uh, and I know I can, but you describe it. Well, if, if anybody in, you know is driven by Spencer Smith Park, that's the one thing. You know, we're really blessed with uh, location. Yeah. You can't ask for a nicer spot at the bottom of the lake along the waterfront. And and uh, but you know, you can come on down. We're from eleven to eleven Friday through Sunday, eleven to seven on on Monday, and you, you just you can expect you got this 15, 16 great, fantastic rib teams. We've got food trucks. We've got other, other food offerings there. There's something for vegetarians. We have crafter marketplace. We have a kid's midway zone. Uh, Magical midways is back with us. And that's really, really popular with the families. And then great. We have two stages, the gem limousine main stage and our West stage. So we've got, entertainment running on both sides of the park with you know the program is a little different from one one stage to the other so there's a we like to say there's something for everybody down and the great thing is uh if you're in burlington and you don't really know where spencer smith park is just roll down the window and smell because you can smell this thing <laughs> from from kilometers exactly. away That's, that was one thing we thought today that the rivers are you know they're starting to cook and yeah and it's funny you haven't been in there for three years but you can start to smell the you know you smell those familiar smells of the smoke going and the ribs cooking and and it, you know it's almost as if we were just there a couple of weeks ago instead of three years ago what are the what are the big challenges to firing this thing up again? Is it has there been difficulty, whether it's volunteers, what have you? How, how do you is it difficulty getting this thing up and running again? It, it, there, there has, you know, I'll be honest with you, there have been some challenges on that front. And again, if anybody wants to volunteer, we are still looking for volunteers to help us. We, we couldn't yeah. do it. We need like 800 volunteers to put this, uh, this, uh, this event on. So that's always a challenge, but it's, you know, it's not new to the pandemic this year. Maybe it's a little bit, a little bit more difficult. Um, and again, we've uh, supply chain issues across the board. Our, our yeah. suppliers, um, you know, they don't have, they don't have product or, you know, they don't have uh, labor to, to, to be able to, to facilitate things so those i would say those have probably been our biggest challenges this year it's just more on the, on the logistics side 
What was the biggest weekend so far that you've had as far as attendance uh, during the 25 years? Any idea? I, generally, yeah, it was, I think it's either 2016 or 2017. We, we hit 180,000 over the weekend. Generally, on, a, on, a, on an average year, we're probably looking at about 140 to 150,000. On a bad year, 125. And again, you know, a bad year is all, it, you know, we're a weather dependent event. And I couldn't have been smiling yeah. when I was listening to the weather report just before we came on air and how listening to the weekend forecast. And I, I was sitting here grinning year to year listening to that forecast. So we're expecting big crowds. We're expecting a record this year if Sound of Music was any indication. Um, people in Burlington and the Hamilton area, they're just, they're ready to, they're ready to come back to these large scale events. Yeah, I would, uh, I would say you have a good chance of breaking any past records uh, this year, Brent, especially when it looks like we're going to have a great weekend too. All right. Well, good luck. Congratulations you. to you. It's the 25th edition of Canada's largest rib fest on this weekend, uh, Burlington Spencer Smith Park uh, over the course of Labor Day, ribs, ribs, and more ribs. Brent, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, I wish my uh, my dad was around to uh, <laughs> to be a part of this segment um, because this was me as a kid. And I remember my father, uh, you know, what kid doesn't like mowing the lawn? No, I did, honestly. And uh, But my dad would insist that it be done at 9 in the morning or 8 in the morning on a weekend, and that wasn't going to happen. So he'd start usually start the lawnmower uh, under my window, and then we'd go from there. I also remember in grade 13, I think, taking a first period spare so I could come in later. Uh, delaying the time when high school starts classes in the morning by as little as 10 minutes can have a positive impact on a teen's sleep, says a Brock University youth expert. I thought I was just a lazy bum. Uh, because of continued psychological, uh, social, physical development that occurs over adolescence, teens 14 to 17 are recommended 8 to 10 hours of sleep a night. Uh, so says Associate Professor of Health Sciences, Karen Patty. She is with us now from Brock University. Karen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me. I love this, but just a little too late for daddy here. Um, you know, what about those that would say, you know what? You can't always decide when you're going to get, to get up. This is all about discipline in the kids. I would say, yes, there's a lot of social factors that contribute to teens going to bed later, but it's not just social. There's also biological differences that uh, makes them fall asleep later around puberty. We have our circadian rhythm shifts later. Uh, so they actually don't release melatonin later and get tired later. So they can't fall asleep. So as a result, they need to sleep in longer uh, to get that sufficient sleep. Uh, I got a, a son that's going through adolescence now, and I've really noticed this because he was always an early riser and things have changed now. How long do teens need to go through this period of 8 to 10 hours? Uh, well, the sleep national guidelines are that 14 to 17-year-olds do get that 8 to 10 hours. Uh, and then we actually, as we go into early adulthood, our sleep phases uh, tend to return to uh, going to falling asleep a little bit earlier than in adolescence. But you still need at least eight hours of sleep after that. Uh, is this why teens sometimes always appear tired? That's right, yes. Uh, at least half of teens aren't getting sufficient sleep. Uh, so as a result, we see them, uh, we've seen increasing from previous generations. They're getting less sleep. They're reporting more tiredness during the day. 
they're having troubles paying attention and concentrating in school. And it also is a large contributor to their mental health and their emotional regulation. So here we're talking about delaying uh, the time that classes start. And you're saying by as little as 10 minutes can have a positive impact. How is that? Well, we we actually we follow students at uh, over 130 schools in Canada. And we noticed that schools each year were shifting their start times a little bit, as little as 5 to 15 minutes. Uh, and a lot of this is around the busing schedules that determines these shifts. Mm-hmm. So we looked at whether these small changes were having an impact on their sleep over time. And we did find when they made it later, as little as 10 minutes, that youth did sleep more. And the same goes as when they made it earlier, they it impacted their sleep. Uh, so there's a lot of calls for late school start times. Um, but what this shows that even those modest changes will have an impact. Now, if we start school later, will they now just not stay up later? Well, that was a lot of claims and concerns uh, that maybe they'll just stay up later or that they will interfere with some of their physical or extracurricular activities. So we also looked at do they spend more time uh, using their screens or different types of media? Mm. Does it adversely impact their physical activity? And we didn't see changes in either of those factors. We just saw the, the improved sleep. How has social media changed this discussion, technology? Well, there's a lot of focus on social media for sure in terms of the impact of screen use. Um, And I wouldn't say it, it is important for sure. Ideally, we want anyone of all ages to put away their screens within the last hour before they go to bed, keep them out of the bedroom. Uh, But what we forget is it's not just screens, people point to blue light, but it's also what's happening on those screens. So we looked at a number of factors uh, and how they contributed to short sleep. And we actually found the things that stood out most were cyberbullying experiences. Hmm. So again, it's what's happening on those screens. And uh, homework time. Students report increasing pressure around school. um, And we found that homework time was a main contributor to uh, not sleeping enough. Wow, and obviously leads to anxiety and other issues uh, like that. Uh, do you think this will see the time of day, no pun intended, where where schools will react to this? We have seen some small shifts over time, for sure. Um, in Canada, we have we have a fair range of start times, uh, most between eight and nine thirty. Some even later, though. And compared to other countries, we, we are better um, in terms of being a bit later, but there are some small changes happening. It's a lot of many factors that go into start time. As I said, one of them is mainly around the busing schedule and so on. Yeah, you can see how that factors in and plays a big part. So mm-hmm. uh, do we have to rethink the early bird gets the worm? I think so. <laughs> All right. Teenagers. Uh, Karen Patty with us, Associate Professor, Health Sciences, Brock University. Delaying the time that high school kids start class by as little as 10 minutes can have a positive impact on uh, their learning. Karen, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Great. Thanks so much. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was not long ago we were talking about recession, uh, and now we're hearing just this week that the gross domestic product. Let's bring in Professor Eric Cam, uh, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Oh, oh. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong one. My fault, my fault. Uh, switching gears here. Uh, booster vaccines. We've been talking about uh, COVID-19 and the new vaccine from Moderna, uh, of course, with uh, uh, the various variants that have come out since Delta. Omicron obviously spreads faster, less less um, uh, lethal, per se. Uh, and many uh, were waiting for, uh, I guess, an, an adapted vaccine, something that would address the variants. And now we have that from uh, Moderna. I'm presuming Pfizer is right on the tails. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, same university, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Tom, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. I'm not sure if I could help you much about economics, but... Uh, no, we'll get you next time. Some- uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get you next time on that one. All right. So, no do you do you think this will change um, people's attitude towards boosters? Because I remember hearing, you know, a few weeks, months ago, some, you know, on social media, some people saying that they were waiting for a booster that more addressed the variants. Do you think this will increase the amount of people or interest in getting a boost? Yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, the you know going to the the variant going to the vaccine vaccines that 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 are omicron specific will will give people a lot more confidence to to get them and and confidence in their in their effectiveness to to uh, help people not get as sick so so I definitely think it's a it's a really good move you know like say personally I've sort of I've held off for for the for the this this one myself because I I just from a timing perspective from the you know the the, the third dose and and I just sort of felt well I'd rather just Give it a month or so, and then get the get this this uh, newer vaccine versus go for the old one. And and so so that was my you know personal choice. And and I think uh, I think there's a lot of people in in that same situation. When will this be available and actually into arms? And what happens to all of the other vaccine? Yeah, uh, well, I, I suppose it just depends on exactly when. Uh, the federal government does give the final approval for it, but but it seems like there's a lot of uh, planning and and uh, you know stuff in 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 play already for for once 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 the approval is may, is is uh, provided, then you know the the vaccines have already been purchased, and I think it will be a relatively quick uh, procedure to to get them here, and and I think you know the the across you know the public health units have have arrangements in place to be able to get get the the vaccines out and to you know sort of open up uh, you know additional uh, additional clinics and, and the like so so I think that that process uh, should be reasonably fast uh, but uh, you know it may not be within a week or so but it, you know I'd say within a couple of weeks I, I would think that we would be seeing 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 that that action happening so does that make the others obsolete at this point uh well, I don't. I wouldn't say that they're obsolete from from the perspective that they're they're that they're not effective. They, I suppose what what I'd say is that they're, you know, the the newer uh, formulations will, I, I feel, will be more effective in in uh, right. uh, ensuring people that don't get as sick. So so it's not that it's 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 just an extra level of protection. I would think. 
It's interesting because I don't know how many variants there are of Omicron now. You could obviously help us there. But uh, this only, I, from what I understand, includes the first couple of variants. This seems much like a flu shot when we're sort of chasing that. And they say, well, it's 60 percent effective. It's 40 percent effective. It's this percent effective because they can't really uh, be 100 percent sure what the next variant or what the next edition is going to be like. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, definitely the uh, you know there, there's always quite a quite a lag time because of you know the in regard to the formulations and the process they have to go through to get the the vaccine approved mm-hmm. means that they're really working from from you know quite a lag in regard to what the uh, you know the original strain was. So so I think uh, you know, the the difference is though that the the Omicron uh, variant is is has a number of features that make it quite different from the original strain, but the the, the sub variants within the Omicron, you know, are, are still within that same sort of lineage. So so I think it's a um, will will prove to be a a, a much more effective uh, vaccine for everyone. Do you think there'll be a run on this, Tom? Uh, well, I'd hope so. Uh, yeah. I think you know at this stage we're about sixty two percent. I think. Uh, you know, with uh, say the third third one, and then uh, third as in the first booster, and and what what I'd like to think people, you know, if they've held off and not got their their, their first booster, they'll they'll get get their first booster with this, and and people who haven't haven't got their second booster will will go from this one as well. So I think it overall it provides a I think a lot more confidence with the within the community for uh, you know for the vaccines and and uh, their effectiveness because I think we've you know what we're trying to do is stop people getting really sick and if they if we can keep them out of hospital and if they can then then not then they're back at work quicker and uh, you know and and it's uh, eases the tension on on the hospital system so there's a there's a lot of benefits to this. I heard, and we've only got about 30 seconds left, I heard one official uh, sounding quite alarmed and said, you know, this is not the flu, we can't be lax on this, and we have way more numbers, The higher we have way higher numbers of this than we did this time last year. But, and we, I think we may have talked about this before, is that a, not, a, in a sense, a bit deceiving in the sense that we have vaccination now, we're just a lot farther ahead than we were a year ago, including a different variant that isn't as deadly? Mm. Yeah, I think that you know the baseline level of immunity within the community is 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 much higher, but uh, there, there's still that the aspect of uh, you know we want to try and use the multi-layer approach of the mm-hmm. various protection measures to to do what we can to protect as many people. Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, new booster out from Moderna, now approved by Health Canada, addressing the other Omicron variants. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, Thanks very much. The Canadian economy grew at an annual rate of 3.3% in the second quarter. We've been talking about recession. What does this mean, even though it's below estimates? Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. He is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and I want to thank you for giving me my very first heart attack at the age of 54 when <laughs> 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was working ahead, and uh, I got confused. Uh, but hey, you know what? I, you could easily talk about uh, COVID-19. We're all epidemiologists this, uh, these days. Anyway, what the heck? All right. Uh, first of all, give us a bit of a economics lesson here, Professor Cam. Uh, what is gross domestic product? What does it mean when it goes up and down? Uh, what does it mean to the economy? What sort of indicator is it? 
Well, it's a super important indicator, but what we must do is after we define it, we have to bifurcate it. So gross domestic product is a simple concept. It is the amount of goods and services being produced in the country in Canadian dollars in a given time period. And so it is basically, if you want a sports analogy, it's the score. It's how are we doing? And it's the score that we use to compare ourselves with ourselves in previous periods or to compare ourselves with other countries. But before people jump up and down and get all excited, we have to go back to first year economics where there is both real gross domestic product and nominal gross domestic product. And some of the numbers that you see coming out, I know they're making the government very happy because they look like they're rising, but that's nominal. Scott, those are gross domestic product figures that are not adjusted for inflation. When you look at the inflation adjusted figures of that number, it comes out to a number barely higher than zero. So is it good that it's not negative? Yes, but the government wants you to jump up and down and be excited about the fact that our country's capacity to produce goods and services is rising, when in fact, it's not really. In fact, it's quite stagnant when you subtract or control for how fast prices are rising today. And we know that. We're certainly all feeling it. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, Eric, we were talking about recession. Is that still on the horizon? Is that something we still should be concerned about? Listen, as much as when you and I talk, I always preface this with I don't have a crystal ball. I still believe that a recession is very possible, and I'll tell you why. Number one, as we know, we can't pull a lever and have things move through the economic system the way that we can in, say, a physics or a chemistry laboratory. So everything takes time to move through the system. And that's what you're seeing now with the interest rate rises and the cooling off in the housing market. And then so part B of what I'm going to say is that the housing market tends to be a very important what's called leading variable. Meaning if you want to see what's going to happen to gross domestic product tomorrow, look at what's happening to the housing market today. And the housing market, as you know, is in a strong decline. So I think that decline is going to lead to a fall in gross domestic product. And that is going to lead by definition to a recession. Is it going to be strong? Is it going to be long lived? Those are just things to guess and I would never guess. But if you're asking me to look at the economic data and say, where are we going? Yes, I think once these interest rate changes moderate through the system and both households and firms get to adjust their spending, I think we're going to be in for an economic downturn. But again, much as guesses don't matter, I don't think it's going to be long or pronounced. Um, many of this, much of this attached to energy, uh, the inflation attached to energy, rising costs. Obviously, if energy goes up, it's it's reflected in, in many other industries, whether it's the supply chain, uh, what have you. Um, we have seen prices fall of late. They're going down this weekend, although many are predicting that they'll go up uh, as we get further into the month again. What are your thoughts on where energy prices are and how this affects all of that? I think it's good to remember that energy is just one aspect, albeit an important aspect, but it's just one aspect in this basket of goods and services that we use to calculate gross domestic products. So I'm glad that you brought that up because yes, prices of energy are falling, prices of crude oil are falling, prices of gas are falling. And that's great if you're a consumer. But remember, if you look at the entire basket, a majority of those prices are still rising things like 
food. Uh, let's just leave it there because that's the most important one if you're trying to, of course, feed a family. So what you're seeing now is, in effect, energy prices coming down, every other price going up. So it doesn't look as bad because of the gas effect. But as I said five minutes ago, and I don't want to be repetitive, things take a while to move through the system. And so you're seeing this effect of lower gas prices hit the system first. But the other prices that are still rising and rising too fast, trust me, they're going to catch up. And suddenly the low gas prices aren't going to look as exciting when a lettuce goes from $3.99, Scott, to $4.99. What does the winter look like for Canadians? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's more emphasis on energy at that time of the year. Yeah, there's always more emphasis on energy and as people heat their homes. Um, so you can look at those numbers. You can also look at what's going to happen to vacations. We know that vacations have been down. Travel has been down thanks to the pandemic. And that may bounce back. So you've got a lot of things right now that are hinging. Things like consumption, things like investment things like exports that are really hinging on a number of uncertainties. And I think what you'll see, again, what a guess is worth, I don't know. But I think as we head into the winter, I'd like to believe that the number of frustrated travelers and people that have some pent up um, income, they're going to want to spend it. So I would expect consumption to actually rise in the winter. And that may, again, help to mitigate any falls in gross domestic product. So where is their growth? The growth right now is unfortunately in the public sector. Right now, growth in the economy is a public sector phenomenon. The private sector is quite stale right now. And that's a really dangerous thing. I know that some of the people on the left of center want to believe that as long as the public sector grows, then the government can be the employer of last resort. But that's putting the economy on a knife edge. What we really need to see right now are some changes to our tax structure. We need to see more disposable income in the pockets of Canadians so that they can continue to keep spending um, at a high level, even though they're facing high interest rates. It is of no benefit long term to have one sector, the government sector, growing because that's only going to put our tax base in real peril, Scott. Uh, Justin Trudeau announced today that he has still no intention of reducing any carbon taxes to help people get through this period. Does that matter? Would it affect anything? Um, it matters in that Justin Trudeau has made it very clear that the economy is not his concern. And that only makes me sad because a well-functioning capitalist economy really works better when you have the two arms, the government of Canada and the Bank of Canada working as a team. And right now you have them working as opposition. And that scares me when you ask the Bank of Canada to do the job of two sectors of government instead of one. But you know what? Governments are resilient and economies are resilient. And really what you're seeing today is in the face of the pandemic, in the face of interest rate increases, and in the face of all of that money that was given out during the pandemic, the economy is chugging along at a positive rate. And frankly, even though that positive rate is somewhere in real terms between zero and one, at least it's not negative and we should be thankful the glass is half full. Good point. Eric Cam with us, Professor Economics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, the GDP at a rate of 3.3% right now. As always, Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. Stay healthy, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Chinese uh, Chinese Communist Party has responded furiously to a United Nations report on alleged human rights abuses in its north e- uh, northwestern regions targeting Uyghurs and other mainly Muslim ethnic minorities. The report has been in the works for years and was released despite Chinese efforts to delay it or block it, aware of how it could validate claims that more than one million ethnic minority members were forcibly sent to centers uh, they say were for vocational training to talk more about all of this gordon holding with us uh, sorry Gor- uh, gordon holden with us director emeritus china institute professor of political science university of alberta and with us now gordon as always thank you for the time i hope you're well I am well. Thank you, Scott. We have certainly talked about, I talked about the Uyghurs before and Muslim ethnic minorities and what's happening to them in China. Is this topic, is this issue, is it gaining uh, more attention? How much, how much uh, significance does this report have? Well, I think the report has a lot of significance. Of course, when you say more attention, it's competing with a lot of issues like Mar-a-Lago and Ukraine war and Mm. Uh, inflation, gas prices, etc. So it's a very crowded field out there. But the report, which is months late in coming, it was released just the day before Bachelet, the High Commissioner of Human Rights, uh, left office. Uh, it was delayed, I think, for a long time because of Chinese protests and some of Chinese friends saying it shouldn't be released. It is significant, though. And when you read it, um, it's almost 50 pages, but it's flat prose. There's not, a, there's no word genocide. Uh, it's unemotional, but it just goes through statute after statute, provisions of international law that have been violated and citing a lot of evidence. So it's very much a a document um, as much as a report. Uh, I thought it was pretty significant and it in balance, on balance backs up many, if not most of the claims made by the critics of Chinese rule in Xinjiang. So now we have a document of what is going on. What will China's response be to this? Uh, do they just deny it all? Basically, that's right. Although the response, unlike the report, is very emotional. A lot of words being flung about, baseless lies, um, disinformation, a patchwork of, of lies. Uh, the, the statements both from Chinese uh, diplomatic officials abroad in Geneva and spokespeople back in Beijing, uh, uh, the response is, is uh, very negative and um, full of, I guess you could say, vitriol. Uh, you bring up an interesting point. The report, very unemotional. The response, very emotional. What does that say? Why does that, what, what does that say about credibility? Well, I think that the fact that the response is emotional and doesn't really attempt to refute in detail the charges shows that a nerve has been pinched in the Chinese government. And that uh, emotional response uh, betrays that. This is a very important um, year for China. In the mid-October, there'll be the party congress. sees looking for at least one or two more terms. Uh, this is unwelcome news coming on the eve of that. Now, how much reportage there'll be within China itself, other than the criticisms, is another question. But China does care a lot about its image abroad uh, for a variety of reasons, and this is a black eye. So I think that emotion, a very quick response, highly negative. Now, I'm sure that they had a chance to look at the advanced copy, probably, and hence provide their answers, but it's um, uh, it's hard-hitting, uh, but again, doesn't really refute the details. It rather attacks the whole 
the whole report on principle. So how does this discussion move forward after this report? What happens now? Well, I don't think a lot happens right away. Um, for one thing, the international system, whether you like it or not, uh, power, great power status counts for a lot. China's got a lot of influence. Even when uh, Bachelet, the High Commissioner of Human Rights, went to Xinjiang, she was very much restricted in where she could go and who she could meet with. She was criticized in the West a lot for that. But I think this report refutes those criticisms. She was doing what she had to do, say, meet with Xi Jinping, meet with the leaders in, in Xinjiang. Um, but in terms of follow-up, I think for the human rights community and for the NGOs, uh, there will be this will give them some wind in their sails. And many countries um, in Europe have perhaps had a little bit longer to study this. I see the Germans have come out, the Brits, the EU, I believe. I haven't seen a Canadian response as yet, but I may have missed it. But I think for Western countries, uh, there will be statements. For much of the world, in, in third world, I don't think they'll pay that close attention, uh, But uh, which is a bit of a disappointment. And Quite frankly, for Muslim-majority countries, they tend to remain silent um, uh, to please the Chinese and don't really usually have much to say, with the occasional exception of Turkey. But, oh, oh. So there you are. I uh, only got about a minute left, and I wanted to yep. ask you about uh, reports in the media, and we've certainly not, this isn't the first time we've heard of this, but Chinese influence over Canadian officials, Chinese Communist Party influence over Canadian officials, specifically in, in when it comes to supporting Beijing as opposed to Taiwan. Is this something we should be paying more attention to? Well, I think we should pay attention to it, and I particularly CSIS and the, as they would have the lead in this regard, um, we do need to be cautious. Now, there's two things here, I'd say. One is that it's normal and acceptable for China to criticize uh, foreigners who support Taiwan and uh, uh, favor those who don't. Uh, th that is normal. But where it becomes abnormal, unacceptable, is when there's threats included or if it's under the table attempting to influence. Upright, I mean, I can criticize Xi Jinping if I wish. He's not going to notice. Uh, that's legal and acceptable. Chinese can do the same. But where it gets into um, secret pressure, under the table pressure, or threats, that's unacceptable. And of course, we have to be alert to those things. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, a new United Nations report on the alleged human rights abuses uh, in China and obviously being met uh, furiously by the Chinese Communist Party. Gordon, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. A pleasure, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, we've talked a lot about inflation, the Prime Minister being pressured to give Canadians some help uh, with that, whether it's groceries, gas, whether it's housing, what have you. Uh, the Prime Minister announced uh, the other day a idea to introduce a rent-to-own uh, housing model, uh, which uh, obviously, as it sounds, start renting and then um, take over ownership in some form. Uh, we've heard it for appliances. Does it work with housing? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, we've heard it for appliances. Does it work for housing? Uh, how does this work? Um, let me just back up for a moment because, you know, people are always curious, you know, who am I listening to? Uh, I lent money 
for nine years, nine years in the 70s and 80s for uh, ASCO Finance and Bank of Montreal. I lent millions and millions and millions of dollars as a loan manager than a mortgage manager. Um, and uh, testified since before the House of Commons Finance Committee many, many times on the housing and financing of housing. I, I am a, a deep, deep believer in the Canadian dream of owning a home, and I applaud every Canadian, every person who scrambles and you know tries their, their damnedest to save up the money uh, to buy a house, which is very expensive. My heart goes out to them uh, because it's so difficult today. So I'm going to say something, because I've been very critical of Prime Minister Trudeau over the years on his policies. It's not personal. It's not partisan. It's on his policies. This is one time where I agree with him. Uh, I don't believe it's going to solve the supply shortage problem, but I applaud the idea of rent to own. And the idea of rent to own, I think, was pioneered by Margaret Thatcher. I could be wrong on that. Somebody can correct me. But I think it was Margaret Thatcher who pioneered it 30-odd years ago where she said to people in, in subsidized housing, uh, uh, you know, we're going to allow you to uh, buy where you are living uh, in a subsidized project, and it's going to be on a on a rent a rent to own basis. So it's basically applying your payments that you're making. I'm trying to simplify it as simple as possible. You're you're applying your payments on a predetermined contract. So it's a contract. It's very legal. It's very binding. And you are applying uh, it towards the purchase at a predetermined purchase price and a predetermined interest rate. And some people say, oh, it's outrageous. You're exploiting people. Look, anytime you buy a house, and I hope everybody's listening really closely, anytime you buy a house, you're talking, unless you're rich, and most of us are not, I'm not, you're paying it off over 25 to 35 years. And that means you're going to be paying back a crap load of money. Don't just ignore it. And someone says, oh, my God, he's, I'm paying back three times what I paid for the house. Yeah? Well, let me tell you something. You rent for the rest of your life, and you pay all of that money. And at the end of 35 or 45 years, you get yeah. absolutely zero. Yeah. Nada. Nothing. Whereas at least with rent to own, at the end of a very long period of time, one day they say, oh, by the way, Here's the keys. Here, here's the ownership to the house. You're now a homeowner and you don't have a mortgage. So who does this benefit? From what I've read, this doesn't necessarily benefit those that have qualified for a mortgage and just can't get into a house because it's so expensive, which is the majority. This is more this is more directed at those who can't even obtain a mortgage, who are having a hard time getting a mortgage. That's my understanding, too. The devil is in the details. I haven't seen it. What Margaret Thatcher, and I keep coming back to Margaret Thatcher because I believe she pioneered it. And it was for people that could not qualify, didn't qualify yeah. for a mortgage. They had bad credit rating. Or uh, they'd been bankrupt, or they, you know, had low income and so forth, and and and, and they were people who were just never ever. But they didn't have to be blunt right. a snowball's chance in hell of getting a mortgage from a bank, and so it was targeted targeted to low income, modest income people. And why I supported it thirty odd years ago, and why I support it today, is because I believe that home ownership is a social policy. It's a socially progressive policy because I really believe in this idea that if you own your home, you're going to treat it differently. President, former President Obama, uh, Lawrence Summers, former president of Harvard, 
uh, and he was the treasury minister uh, in that government, had a great line, a wonderful line that everybody should memorize. He said, nobody washes a rental car. Mm. Own the car. Guess what? You treat (laughs) it well. You wash it. You take care of it. You get the oil changed. You take care of it because it's your car. Yeah. So how many people, and I'm not saying that everybody who rents are bad people. I'm not saying that. No. But why are you going to put all kinds of money into a car, into a property you don't even own? That's nuts. So own it. You take pride of ownership. And I believe that benefits the community as a whole, as well as you and your family, which is why I believe so profoundly in home ownership and why I am strongly endorsing rent to own. Uh, does this help the average Canadian just trying to buy a house, or is this specific to those who are having issues no, just even getting a mortgage? It won't help them at all. In fact, my criticism now, because i got to criticize Mr. Trudeau, right? <laughs> because I have, and it's fair. There's two drivers in our, our problem in Canada today. I mean, when we step back, look at the big picture. Why do we have this problem of lack of affordability? And there's nothing mysterious. It wasn't little green men that came down from Mars and said, you and Canada are going to have a housing problem. The problem is driven by two separate variables, and they can be solved. They are solvable, but they're very, very pernicious. One is that the cities across our country, the big cities, Mm -hmm. I'm talking Hamilton. I'm talking city of Ottawa. I'm talking city of Toronto and Vancouver. The mayors and the councillors and the urban planners develop this idea of, quote, urban sprawl. which is really deeply offensive. It's offensive because it is a rebranding of population growth. So what? Stats Canada has told us all population growth is going to come from immigration. So this is a, uh, whether it's unconscious bias or whether it's deliberate, I don't care what the motive is. This is an attack on immigrants and young people. Because when we don't build enough houses, and create shortages, the, it falls and hurts them. So we need, CMHC has said we've got, by 2030, we're going to have 5 million shortfall. And the cities, the municipalities across Canada have been a major, major driver of our problems in our country and creating deliberately this shortage because of this, I, I think it's fraudulent claim yeah. of mm. urban sprawl. Secondly, very quickly, for a run at a time, I've been very, very critical of the Bank of Canada on, uh, I'm not saying printing money. I'm not going to get into that debate. They drove interest rates down way, way, way too low, lower than in the Great Depression of the 1930s. What did that do? It caused everybody to go out and say, hey, look, money is basically free or almost free. I'm going to go out and spend, spend, spend till daddy takes the T-bird away. Uh, That's the Beach Boys uh, song. Okay. And so what did it do? It drove house prices through the roof. Yeah. So there's two solutions. Number one, we got to get interest rates up. Paradoxical as that sounds, we got to get them up because it's going to bring house prices down. TD Bank is saying this. It's going to yeah. bring prices down. Desjardins Financial is saying this. And I believe BMO is saying this. I agree completely. And secondly, we've got to do something about these cities like Hamilton, like my city, that is deliberately obstructing and trying to stop the expansion of the suburbs uh, on the edges of every city in our country, which is, you know, they're doing what the French did. We want to put them into tall, high-rise <laughs> ghettos. 
called Les Van Lu. It's amazing, called. Ian. I got to let you go there, but it's either nimbyism in the city or urban sprawl in the countryside, and it's all brought us to the point that we are now. Appreciate your yeah. time, Ian Lee, Associate yeah. Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Thank you, Ian. All right, we were talking, actually broke, the, the news broke while we were on the air. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, passed away. Uh, or sorry, not, not Vladimir Putin. Boy, some people would be cheering in the streets if that was the case. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev passed away at the age of 91. And Russian President, current Russian President, Vladimir Putin, uh, today paid tribute, uh, but will not attend the uh, former Soviet leader's funeral. Uh, and it's not really a state funeral either. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham is with us, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, International History University of Toronto, and with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. I hope you're well as well. Are you surprised that that uh, Gorbachev is not getting a state funeral? Um, politics or not, he still was a president. Should he not be getting a state funeral? Well, you can argue that he should, but uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, has a very different take on things. For uh, for Putin, Gorbachev is uh, is the man who's responsible for the uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and Putin is on record as describing that as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. So he's uh, he's he's not a man who's inclined to forgive what he sees as uh, as Gorbachev's great historical error. And there's also the fact that just temperamentally, uh, Gorbachev stood for the uh, the opening of uh, of at least the partial opening of a very closed system, and Putin is going in the opposite direction. So How? I think it's fair to say he wouldn't have much use for uh, for Gorbachev. Uh, how are the how are the citizens of Russia uh, reacting to this? Uh, are, are they split as well? Are they split on this? Um, how do they feel about Miguel Gorbachev? Well, his name was mud for uh, for most of the Russian population when he tried a political comeback in I think 1996, ran for president of Russia. He got less than one percent of the vote. So for all of them, he's uh, I suppose I suppose they would have largely bought into. Uh, the Putin interpretation of his tenure as one of of decline and of and of Russia ceasing to be a world power. Does his passing and the fact that it's not rec- being recognized the way uh, or with a state funeral uh, does this reinforce Putin's position? Does this reinforce uh, even the public's position on where Russia is now? It probably does tend to solidify things. I mean, uh, Gorbachev, for uh, for most of the Russian electorate, is probably a figure from a distant past, uh, but a past that they tend to view through uh, through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, Putin's uh, Putin's promises to restore that lost greatness may uh, may be made a little easier to uh, to swallow by the fact that Gorbachev is now being interred. Uh, is life that much better now under Putin as opposed to Gorby? Well, it is uh, it is freer, but for uh, for much of the Russian public, uh, Russia's uh, standing as a, as a great power is worth more than the uh, than the freedoms that they've won and that uh, Gorbachev was instrumental in uh, in bringing to them. Obviously, as we stated, no state funeral. There will be a public ceremony. Who will attend that? Do you think this will be well attended? Uh, I think there will be uh, there will be some who'll. Uh, Will attend. I would be surprised if uh, 
if many from the uh, the ruling circles attended, uh, it would be uh, it would be a rather brave thing to do, given the current climate of opinion. But uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 fact is that uh, Gorbachev's legacy is uh, is both in in Russia and abroad a somewhat complicated and contested one. Uh, will this funeral be an intelligence uh, an intelligence gathering operation for Putin? It may be. I think just about any gathering of two or more people is potentially an intelligence gathering operation for him. Uh, one Russian official said, uh, because, again, here in the West, everybody loved him. I mean, he was the, the guy that ended the Cold War. You know, he helped uh, uh, Americanize, for lack of a better word, um, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, one official said he was able to bring Russia its freedom, but not able to help Russia uh, make use of that freedom. What does that mean, do you think? I think it means that he wasn't able to reconcile the uh, the Russian public to uh, to its diminished status. I mean, keep in mind he came to power hoping to uh, to reform the Soviet system, make it more efficient, make Russia a more effective competitor with the West. And uh, to the extent that he uh, presided over its disintegration and became a, a consequential historical figure on that score, he did so rather accidentally. Uh, you can argue that his big mistake, and maybe this is what the uh, the, the uh, speaker you quoted referred to, was that he uh, he opened up the system politically before reforming it economically, and that meant that uh, from that point on he had to wear all of the inefficiencies and stagnation and sluggishness of the Soviet economy. So this was le- this was less about the disintegration of what ha- uh, what was. And more about the lack of uh, of the rebuild being efficient enough or, or being strong enough to 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 continue on the vision. That's a big part of it. You'll notice that the Chinese have not uh, made the same mistake of going down that road. So, where's the? Is there a happy medium, or can you blend these two systems? Uh, I don't think you. Uh, I don't think you can, uh, at least in the long run. Uh, the Chinese have tried to with a, uh, a capitalist economy and a totalitarian political system, but uh, they're, uh, they're, finding, uh, they're finding that it's, uh, it's tempting once you get total power politically to try to uh, reassert it economically as well. That's, uh, that's what she's been doing the last few years. What does China learn from Russia and what they've done specifically since the invasion of Ukraine and such? And and back to the days of Gorby, what have they learned from Russia? Well, they've learned not to uh, loosen the uh, the strings politically, for uh, for one thing. They've learned to try to keep people uh, prosperous and happy. And uh, they're perfectly happy to see Russia in, in um bogged down in uh, in Ukraine not least because the uh, the alignment between the two uh, the two powers will increasingly be on China's terms it's interesting that China appears to be uh, a lot more successful in the last couple of decades than Russia has been able to be um, what could Russia have learned from China well I think uh, I think uh, Gorbachev if, if he'd been a a wiser man would have moved to reform the economy much more, uh, much more radically than he in fact did, uh, uh, pr- and, and perhaps even before loosening things up uh, politically. Uh, the uh, what 
what economic liberalization did take place was largely just a looting of state assets and handing them over to uh, to the oligarchs who now seem to run the Russian economy. It wasn't a, a thoughtful, pragmatic, well thought out uh, economic reconstruction. More corruption in current day Russia than Gorby's day. Well, it's uh, it's not so much within the uh, within the Communist Party structure as within the uh, the, uh, the 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 oligarchs and the people around Putin. But uh, arguably, there is more corruption. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School and International History at the University of Toronto. Jack, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Boy, it just doesn't get any more interesting than watching the trials and tribulations of Donald Trump uh, to the point where you've got to ask yourself, even if you're a supporter, uh, you know, if you're a Republican, what have you, at what point do you just say, is this the best we can get? Is it not like a half a dozen people, Republicans, somewhere in the United States that can do a better job than um, this distraction, per se? Uh, Court hearing today in West Palm Beach, Florida, to decide if, as former President Donald Trump is requesting, a judge uh, should appoint a special master master to review these documents that are being seized or that have been seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. Of course, you know uh, that situation. Uh, let's bring in Thane Rosenbaum, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College, uh, Director of the Forum of Life, Culture and Society, NYU, and as well, legal analyst with CBS News Radio and with us now. Thane, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. It's nice to hear your voice again, Scott. Like, bring it. Give us a little update here, because it's it's really hard to follow this without a program. Where are we now? And has Donald Trump's uh, publicizing this whole event has this backfired for him? Oddly enough, I think it's helped him. At least it energized his base. Mm -hmm. Because think of the way he his base sees it. Our guy, from the very first day he entered the Oval Office, has been subject to an FBI investigation. They can't stop. They can't stop rejecting our choice. That's what they're thinking. And they're saying, and guess what? Our guy, despite all of these various lawsuits and prosecutions, has not yet been convicted of anything. He hasn't been in, he has not been removed from office from anything, nor has he been required to pay a civil penalty from anything. And so when Donald Trump says the word witch hunt, his people respond to that. They go, yeah, here yeah. we go again. The FBI were essentially taking orders from Joe Biden. That's how they see it. Using it as his own private hit squad. That's how they see it. Uh, just so happens there's the midterm elections coming up, and Donald Trump is soon going to announce whether he's going to run for president again. And he's, I think, working off of the fumes of this. On the other hand, he does face significant legal jeopardy. But politically, for him... Remember, he was the one during the first set of debates in 2016. He said famously or infamously, my people love me so much that I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and kill them and they would still vote for me. He said that during a debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew that. <laughs> he must have known that that was true. So, uh, so the can... your... yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so last week, there was, uh, there was an effort by uh, media companies and Donald Trump to release and unseal the affidavit that supported the warrant to explain uh, why the justification for the search of a former president's home. That uh, 
uh, affidavit was released to the public, but it was so far so fully redacted that it didn't mean anything. You couldn't tell what was going on. Mm-hmm. This week, the president initiated his own civil case simply to request a, uh, a special master, which would be a third party, a neutral, usually a senior judge who comes in and in this case would evaluate whether, in his view, the search was too broad and whether any of the documents that were seized could have been subject to privileges and should have been returned to the president. That's all that happened today. The arguments were today, and the judge is taking it under advisement. She'll probably rule next week. No matter what happens here, will the base look at it the way they want to look at it and those uh, on the other side the way they want to? Or is there teeth in this? Is this going somewhere? So I know, you know, north of the border, this is showtime for you guys. Uh, I don't know how it's how it's perceived, but this is a profoundly divided country with no center, yeah. no middle, absolutely no middle. Um, and the, uh, you know, the president of the United States, President Biden, just the other day, you know, now it's he's on full attack of MAGA supporters who are fascist, semi-fascist, I think, yeah. uh, to, to Trump's base. They hear this as when Hillary Clinton called them the deplorables. So being yeah. called MAGA fascist to them is deplorables part two, right? Uh, you know, smug Democrats who think low of people who listen to country music and drive pickup trucks. And that's yeah. the country. We're just very, very profoundly divided. And, and you're right. Your question is probably almost anything that happens to Donald Trump, his base will see it as him being persecuted. And He's sort of the po- to Donald yeah, go ahead. He's sort of the poster boy for conspiracy theories. I mean, he's the yeah. because, again, my in my opening, I said, you know, and, and this could go to the Democrats as well. I mean, is this the best you can do uh, out of a country the size of the United States? Is there not five or six better Democrats or Republicans than what we're dealing with right now? It's pretty embarrassing. I mean, believe me, we know that here. <laughs> we're not unmindful to how this plays, yeah. you know, outside, you know, it uh, well, you know, part of it is our system of governance. You know, parliamentary systems allow for more fractured politics and more parties. It's ridiculous, a nation of 330, 340 million people that have only two political parties. Um, and it also is perhaps in the age of the Internet. You know, it's a profoundly uh, uh, uninteresting position for a lot of qualified people, you know. For a lot of people, yeah, who wants no. this? Who, who, who yeah. would want this? this pers- <laughs> exactly. This yeah, the, the bar is being. Yeah, yeah, the bar is constantly being lowered here. Uh, we only got like a few seconds left. Tax records. Uh, are we any closer to finding the uh, former president's tax records and what all went on there? Or is that just another dog and pony show? Yeah. Well, that's not what this particular matters about. There are other no, cases, no. But I'm just saying, just to show you how many are going on. There's yeah. the criminal case out of Manhattan, which involves what you're talking about, the art of the inflation of his uh, buildings and golf courses to get loans and insurance policies that requires the tax records. Uh, and there's a, a case by the New York Attorney General's office, a civil case, similarly about Donald Trump's business practices. You know, he's got there's got to be like four. Case, and now there's a case in Georgia on the on the tampering of the election. You know, he's got lawyers everywhere. He's, he's in, in, entangled in many different disputes. 
It, it, his life is a perpetual court case. It's just, it's never ended. Uh, Thane Rosenbaum with us, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, NYU, and legal al- analyst with CBS Radio. Always fascinating, Thane. Thank you for the time. Be well. Anytime for you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I have a new slogan for your show, Scott. Hamilton Today, the first ever Eric Cam heart attack. 